Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to the Domesticated Dude podcast. I'm Logan, your host on this journey. Today, I'm excited to share the conversation I had with my dad. We covered a lot of ground, including some things that we've never talked about before. So you'll be hearing some things during this episode that I was also hearing for the first time. But before we get into the episode, I want to give a huge shout out to all you dads out there. It's Father's Day. I hope you've had a great day doing whatever you've wanted to do. Hopefully you've been enjoying a beverage or two and just doing whatever the hell you want to do because it's Father's Day. By the way, if you're still looking for a Father's Day gift, it'll be late anyway, but we still have Domesticated Dude podcast t-shirts available. Don't worry, you're already late with a present, so what's a couple more weeks? Make sure you get your order in before June 25th. You can find all of the details on our Facebook page or at bit.ly slash dude shirt. All right, let's get into this episode with my dad. We talk about his family's trek to Alaska back in 1953 when there weren't any paved highways or anything like that. And Anchorage was kind of the wild west. He gives us a little bit of insight on that. We talk about his experience during the 1964 Good Friday earthquake. We also talk about how he lived in a house called the Pandemonium House. And you can only imagine what kind of shenanigans went on there. We talk about his experience in the Navy, how he met my mom, and a lot of lessons that he's learned as a dad raising a kid like me, an only child, and owning his own business in the process. If you like what you hear, Share with a friend, follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Apple. You know the drill. Without further ado, here's the conversation with my dad. Hope you enjoy. Dad, it's good to see you. What's going on? Oh, not too much. Just uh, enjoying the wonderful oh summer weather here in Alaska. Did you forget what season it is? No, but it's trying to either trying to be cold with the sunshine or sunshine with it's it's a long story. Fair enough. Fair enough. Is it uh, staying light up there at least? Oh, man. I have to wear my sleep mask so I can get to sleep at night now. <laughs> it's, only, it's only about midnight, I think, when the sun goes down. So it, it's, uh, I, I go before it. Nice. Been that's working cool. hard on the yard, uh, took down the hedge, and that's looking pretty cool. doesn't look like I may be able to put it back. Mom seems to like that uh, fresh view of the lake. And uh, all the neighbors seem to think it's really nice, too, that they have extra viewing viewing of the lake since I took that down. Cool. But That's a nice service that you provided your friendly neighbors. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Merle next door, the Mr. Flyman, you got to keep him happy. Yeah. You know, he takes me out and gets me some pike. And, and if I'm not with him, he still brings me home some pike. So yep. there you go. Keep him happy. There you go. There you go. Keep him happy. Well, Dad, before we get any further, I just want to say happy early Father's Day. Uh, We're recording this episode for Father's Day to release it on Father's Day. And just want to say thanks for being my dad and teaching me right and wrong. And 
allowing me to screw up sometimes and letting me learn from it. I, I really appreciate your parenting style and your love for me and, and the way that we've grown together over these last few years and over these last 33 years. Absolutely. And I love it. You've always been a, a well, you haven't always been a good kid, but tolerable. That's fair. Tolerable. That's fair. I'm sure I've given you, I'm sure all of those gray hairs you could probably attribute to me. I don't have many of them left, son. But <laughs> that's fair enough. It's fair enough. You just shaved yours off. That's all. That's well, all yeah, that's the smart you. way to do it. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, except in your beard. Yeah, but that's just my wisdom, right? I, that's what hopefully I tell people. It's, hopefully it's your wisdom. Yeah. I, that's what it says in the book. I'd like to think so. <laughs> well, and... You know, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, come on and and uh, give you some of my words of wisdom. I've enjoyed uh, some of the previous podcasts that you have presented. It gives me kind of a different uh, perspective of things, hearing you and your friends talk about what is, what was, and what might be. And so it's always good to hear, get a little input, something that I I didn't have the advantage of while I was growing up, now you have technology to assist you and to give you people's perspective that they normally did not share with just acquaintances and or friends. You know, to sit down and talk to somebody about your feelings or your how you perceive things was not something that was normal conversation. I could see that for sure. I mean, even in our society now, it, it's a lot of people still don't think it's a normal thing, but people are being more open to it because of these, these types of platforms like podcasts and, and videos and all that stuff. That's becoming a little bit more mainstream and you have to talk about it. You have to talk about things. Otherwise it's just going to bottle up inside and nobody wants that to happen. So dad, let's start at the beginning. You have just a fantastic story to tell, and it's a very unique story that I don't think a lot of people who I know are aware of. You moved to Alaska before it was even a state. Tell me a little bit more about that. We we don't really talk about that a whole lot. So can you kind of give me a quick synopsis of what that trek was like? I was almost five. My sister was my sister Donna was with me, my mom, my dad, and the cat. All of us stacked into a 1952 Ford uh, four door with a with a uh, car carrier top on it, with everything we had that was left over in Washington. Dad had taken some of the stuff up pri- prior to that. He'd already been up and gotten a job, and so he came down to get us, and we started our our uh, overland trek through Canada, no pavement. Right. Wonderfulness of boulders and oh, rain and ugly. And, you know, you traveled, you traveled when you could. Um, typically the gas pumps uh, would, would shut down about 10 o'clock at night. And so if you got there at 11, you better sleep, take a break. And because you're not going to get any gas until he wakes up and opens up about six o'clock in the morning. You know, it's funny you say that because you and I had a very similar experience to that while we were driving up from Reno when I was moving back home from Reno when we drove, we were on E for probably what, 20 minutes 
and we're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And we pull into this bar. We see a bunch of cars there. So we know that people are in there and we say, hey, we're out of gas. Is there anybody in here? Can you point us towards the gas station? And the guy stands up from the bar. He says, yep, I own the gas station just right down the road. Just follow me. And we're like, oh my goodness, you just saved our lives. Sorry. We're back home. Yeah. So if that's how bad it was in 2007, I can only imagine what it was like 50 years before that. That's, that's insane. And it was, and it was the old, old pumps that you had to pump the gas up into uh, the glass bulb on top of the uh, gas pump. And then it gravity fed down into your car. So it was, those were kind of cool. If I only knew. (laughs) <laughs> so the, only, the one of the biggest things that stands out to me uh, about our trip uh, since I was so young and impressionable was a very cold bath in a very cold river when dad says, OK, out of the car, off with your clothes and into the water. I went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that one memory has, you know, I'm I'm here. I'm uh, more mature than that now. So for over 60 years, I, that little thought about a trip to Alaska with my dad, my mom, my sister, and the cat has stuck with me. That's so cool. I, don't, I don't think too much of anything else. I can't really recall that. So that's about all I get out of that one. Do we you... did get to Anchorage two days before my birthday. So my mom got up and went to the uh, car's grocery store on Gamble Street was the only one that was around. Yep. Get a cake pan so she could bake me a birthday cake. So that in a nutshell is my trip to Alaska in 1953. That's cool. So, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Why did your family move to Alaska in the first place? I don't know if we've ever had this conversation. I don't think we have, but one of the things that uh, dad was a avid fisherman and hunter. And so he was down in Washington, and he'd been a logger, he'd been a, a salesman, he'd been a carpenter, he'd been a lot of things. But the lure of the last frontier type of process, someplace where he could go fishing at his at a drop of a hat, or go hunting the same way. I mean, we we shot a moose one time, that's probably about. Uh, 10 miles out of town, but it's now part of the mainstream of the hillside. Right. I mean, we went up there and got a big 1,500-pound moose. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's how things happen. And, and he was very excited about coming to Alaska because he wanted a fresh start. He wanted to go someplace to give um, himself a fresh start. He wanted me to have the abilities to learn about the woods and, and fishing and hunting and all the rest of those things. And I think that was his prime driving force was getting out of, getting out of mainstream Washington and coming someplace new where, I mean, I was looking at statistics. It seems to pop in my head that there was about 50,000 people in Anchorage. There was no pavement downtown. They had the only thing that was paved with the sidewalks at fourth Avenue. Wow. So, I mean, considering we've got about 300,000 plus or minus uh, in Anchorage now, 
I mean, it's, you know, it's was a long ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of Anchorage, I know you have a pretty interesting story about the earthquake, the 1964 earthquake. Tell us what happened during the earthquake. Well, it was Good Friday. I was a member of the Elks organization at the, at the time called the Antlers. And we were planning a big dance that night. So myself, um, a couple other guys went down and were helping to decorate the hall for this big dance that we were going to have. Well, just before everything started going sideways, my buddy's mom came and picked us up from the Elks Lodge. And we're sitting at a stoplight in downtown Anchorage on 4th Avenue. And all of a sudden, across from us, I see this building start. It's a brick building. It was a Wolf's Home Furnishings. I see this building start shaking. Emerson's mom thought she was having a heart attack because everything was just rolling and shaking and couldn't figure out what was going on until a window out of the second story office complex next to us at the stoplight, the window fell out and crashed on the sidewalk and brought her back to square one. And she realized that it wasn't her that was having the problem. It was everybody. It was everything else. So we sat there, which seemed like forever. I mean, it just it kept going. And it was it was moved from a seven point something to now with their estimation, it was a nine point two earthquake, second largest ever recorded in Alaska. And so when it when it finally quit shaking, we decided, well, you know, let's get going. We got to get back to the dance here pretty soon. So uh, we drove around the corner, and when we drove around the corner, J.C. Penney's was had a five-story building, and one of our friends was killed in that um, because now that J.C. Penney's was three stories tall. So, oh. and one of the one of the walls came down. It was a 1960 Buick sitting at the stoplight with his signal on and just crushed. Wow. And wow. we're starting to think that maybe this isn't such a good idea. So he, they take me on down to where he was meeting his parents or his dad, and somebody was going to come and pick me up. Well, we got home, and there was, there was a crack across our road. We kind of lived out in the sticks a little bit. There was a crack across the road, but it was only a, like an inch or two. And there was a crack in our front yard, and the only thing that was busted was a was a bottle of cooking oil in the kitchen. <laughs> it's a sturdy house. Yeah. So anyway, the the end run on that was that well, we figured, well, we'll get we'll get home and we'll get changed and we'll go back. And then we heard about the rest of what was going on in Alaska. I mean Turnigan Turnigan uh, subdivision was sliding off into the into the inlet. The bay in Valdez was empty. Uh, there's a huge crack in the in the seafloor that drained all the water. The crack closed back up and the water came back, which ended up having causing uh, the city of Val Valdez to relocate their town site. It's yep. just an incredible thing that really did shape the rest of Alaska's history. Yep, it sure did. Caught everybody. Um, Alaskans have a tendency to be not. <laughs> 
they used to have bumper stickers that said, we don't care how they do it outside. Because, you know, Alaskans rely and count on one another very heavily because we're the only ones that can take care of each other. And so when things like that happen, everybody kind of just circles the wagons and makes sure that everybody's taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. You're so, all in it. You were all in it together. Everybody was looking out for one another. Sort of sounds like now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one other thing that had happened just pre prior to our getting to Alaska, uh, in May of 1953, Mount Spur down on the Kenai erupted and left Anchorage with a quarter, at least a quarter inch or more of volcanic ash. So it was volcanic ash everywhere. Oh, jeez. And, and I remember, you know, when it's from May to August is not very long and it doesn't go away. It just kind of blows from one section to another. So that was the other, the other thing. And the, and the first year of TV, our favorite program was a test pattern. <laughs> so yeah, 1953 KTVA came on, came online and that was, we, I remember having the TV and watching that test pattern for many hours of the day. Wow. So, huh. Were you anyway. just kind of mesmerized by it? Was it kind of like a meditation as you watched no, it? No, it was, it was kind of like if you didn't have it on, there wasn't any set time that the regular programming came. So, <laughs> so you were, so a program would come on and you'd be like, oh, it's on now. It's, there were yep. no TV guides. There were no anything like that. You just kind of waited by the TV and waited for it to start playing. I mean, typically they said, you know, it's going to be on by six or something. You know, I mean, it was really obscured times. And so, uh, and being a kid, you, you kind of just paid attention to what was on. Right. Just to be able to think about those things. I know we've had our moments with that kind of stuff, like the rotary phone and Big Lake and some of these, <laughs> some of these other uh, throwback technologies, you know, where kids my or guys my age have no idea how to use some things and people younger than me don't even know what cds are you know and so it's just crazy to see how times have changed so fast and i feel like within the last 50 years we've come so far i hear people talking um older generation beyond me you know that have seen the coming and going of the phonograph of the of the compact well you say compact disc but cassette tapes and the 45s and the 33s and the 78s, you know, all those things. And it's all crammed into what's just behind us. Okay. So let's, let's kind of keep going through your life story here. I think there's some other fascinating things that we need to get to. Uh, <laughs> so after you graduated high school, you graduated high school and there were two high schools in Anchorage. Now there's six, seven, at least. And after high school, you lived in a house uh, with some buddies, and that house was called the Pandemonium House. Now, I've lived in some party houses in my time, but none of them were called the Pandemonium House. I can only imagine what kind of shenanigans were going on there. Uh, what, what was that experience like for you? It was total chaos. We had... Uh... We had a drum, we had a singer for one of the lead bands in Alaska, Blue Chip Stock. So uh, I had a, a gentleman or a guy that was graduated from the other high school, West, and we had oh, several people that 
we sort of created a bond with. Uh, one of them went on to be my one of my best friends. Went in the Navy together. Uh, went through boot camp together. Butch Zabatoski. So it, I mean, it was a pandemonium. How pandemonium was an apropos title for this place. We had parties just about. Well, not every night, but we had to have some time for recovery, right? You can't party every yeah. night. That's just can't do that. That's silly, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't do that. Who says I can't do that? But yes, it was very apropos, but it was crazy. Which were some crazy times. We had a lot of the uh, young guys that were musicians around town had been uh, in school with us. So there was Shindig City. There was the Cinnamon Cinder. There was all these wonderful clubs that we could go dance. And um, a lot of the guys that would end up back at our place after the dance after the dance was over, and continue to party down. So, anyway, that lasted for a while, not too awful long, probably five or six months. And it was about that time that we decided that we probably better put some of our stuff all in one bag and get on to something else. And so that's when I went into the Navy. Butch and I, I flew down to uh, Los Angeles. After Butch went down, he was going down to see some friends. And I says, well, I'll see you next week. He says, what do you mean? I said, I'll see you next week. Well, during that week, I sold just about everything I had in my life, enough money to get a plane ticket to get to L.A. because we both had joined the Navy and we were all going to go into San Diego. So... A week later, I call him up on the phone. I says, Butch, this is Dave. Where are you at, Dave? I'm at the airport. Can you come get me? You're what? <laughs> Thought I was just kidding him. That started that started part of my um, wonderful learning experience of California and some of the, I mean, his girlfriend's dad was one of the first slingshot dragster drivers uh, out in Pomona. And so there was a lot of things that uh, we think and take for granted that we're part, starting to come of age. Uh, Sunset Strip was evolving. The hippie movement, not that I had long hair, but it was shoulder length. I can't picture that in my mind. Uh, I have a hard time with it myself, actually. And I don't think there are any pictures from that time, which is probably okay for your Probably sake. a good thing. Probably a good thing. But anyway, so we, we all uh, bundle ourselves up a couple months later, and uh, we were parking cars on sun on. Uh, on the boulevard and it was the days of Sonny and Cher would come in and have us park their car and we would go wash cars we would do anything for a quick buck one of our roommates was like seven feet tall had played for the Los Angeles Lakers but had an injury and so he, they put him on the disabled list and so he was just kind of hanging out not doing anything he came over and was staying with us for a while and one night he came out all of a sudden, he just collapsed. Now, this guy is seven, over seven feet tall. We call the ambulance. He, they come get him, and he's got his knees hanging over on one side. He's got his head hanging over on the other side. They barely fit him into the ambulance to take him off to the hospital. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Dislocated his back, and he just couldn't walk. Oh, but, man. Sorry, was that ahead. after you got out of the Navy that you were living in L.A. for a little while? Oh, this was just before I was getting ready to go in. Okay. Okay. All right. So, 
we lived there for a little while, and then we all joined up and went down to San Diego on the buses from the L.A., um, basically a collection center, and took us down to to uh, San Diego. Get there about 3 o'clock in the morning. They put us in our barracks, rotation barracks, for the new guys. The next morning, this guy, Baldwin, comes in, takes a 55-gallon trash can, one of those metal galvanized, and from one end of the barracks to the other, he throws it. So that was our wake-up call. I was part of the uh, bike squad. My job uh, while we were in training was to deliver messages on my little red bike all around the base. I hated it. But (laughs) it it beat peeling potatoes. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) I bet it did, yeah. You get to get some exercise all day and just kind of ride around. Yeah, and then at night we could go for our twenty cent movies. So you were in the navy. Uh, you were in the navy for four years, right? Yeah, three three years, eight months, eleven days, but nobody's uh, counting. You're nobody's counting. But then after the navy, did you were you back in Anchorage then after the navy? Yeah, I was. I was in uh, California for a little while, and Butch uh, talked with Butch, and he said, "Well, Dave, you need to come up here." I said, "Okay." So I went up, and we bought a house in the Naka Valley or I bought a house in the Naka Valley. My sister helped me with that. I think it was a whopping $20,100. My payments was $185 a month. And so to to help pay for that, I I had been a dental tech or a dental assistant in the Navy. So I went to work for Alaska Dental Supply, selling dental equipment, delivering dental equipment, jack of all trades around the warehouse. Anyway, so I started working there for a while. And then my friend Butch says, Dave, you need to come down here and sell life insurance. That was in 1971. By 1972, I had become an insurance salesman. And God only knows that if someone would have told me that five years before that, I'd be selling insurance, I'd have told them they were crazy. (laughs) Why insurance? Why did you choose it? Just because Butch said you should you should try this what drew you to it well which was there was one fact plus they gave us a salary plus commission that's pretty good back then that's good now yeah. actually yeah not too bad so i did i took advantage of it i worked with with uh them for about a year and at that time i just i was having trouble i was i was the way they paid you they annualized your premium they give you all of those monies up front, and then just about the time you think everything was good, they canceled their policy. The company wanted all the, the money back. So anyway, I, I located a, a position with working on the North Slope oh, yeah. in the warehouse for uh, Vico, which was one of the larger employment processes on the slope. And I worked up there for about six months. We worked a week on or six weeks on, a week off. You were making about $1,000 a week. And when you went home, in other words, when you came off the slope, you made sure you only stayed home a week because you weren't ever sure if you were going to have a job if you didn't get right back up there. Because there is such a high demand, a high supply of people who are ready to go work up there. Anytime, anywhere. And they'd probably pay them cheaper than what they were paying you or somebody who was already established. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I was working about 80, 90 hours a week. 
And it was an experience that I that I'm really glad that I took advantage of and had. Anyway, so I worked up there for about six months. I came back to Anchorage. Um, I took some of the funds and uh, bought a duplex. And the rest of it, I partied away with my buddy Butch, who was getting a divorce. Cost me a lot of money. Cost him half of it, whatever he had, and it cost me the rest of my savings. Uh, I was just going to say, it probably cost you more than it cost him. Damn. <laughs> so, anyway, we learned from our endeavors we learn from some of our miscues and you just got to keep you just got to keep going forward yep so yep absolutely and that's something that you've always taught me too whenever i misstep or you know have <laughs> that in my life you've always been that calming presence in my life to say that's happened it's done all you can do is learn from it and keep moving forward and learn how to do better and that's always stuck with me and being able to learn from mistakes and make sure you don't repeat them. That's, that's kind of the biggest life lesson that I've learned so far. Yeah. And, it, and it's, and it's too bad. Some of the, some of the people around us, even though the more mature ones, so to speak, are still trying to figure that one out yeah. because they do the same thing over and over again. But having said that, I will let them be with their own devices. So as we got going, um, there was a, really great club called the cabin tavern. And so I was out there one night and somebody introduced me to this young lady and they said, Oh, you need to know her. She's in the insurance business too. Mm -hmm. Well, come to find out this was my wife of 37 going on 38 years. So now. What, what year was this? This was 1980. What? Two. 1982. When we cabin tavern this very unassuming hole in the wall bar just kind of stuck on the side of the street somewhere that you drive it's one of those places that you drive by you're like mm, i don't know if i want to go in there but maybe in 1982 <laughs> it was a much nicer place i hope at least well they had a great band well okay there you go sold there you go and cheap cheap beer ah that double sold yeah double double troll Anyway, so uh, mom and I uh, started dating, and then we went our separate ways for a while. I don't know if I ever knew that. Can you walk me through um, kind of how you got back together and where the spark came from the second time? My mom, mom really liked your mom. And so there was a function. It was probably about six, seven months after we had kind of broke up a little bit. And about seven months later... My mom was throwing a Christmas party or something. I, I can't remember exact, but it was a it was a celebration of some sort. And I walk in and there's your mom. And so we started talking and then the rest was history. Okay. Okay. Why did you guys decide to break up in the first place? If you don't mind me asking. And I just want everybody to know that this is a conversation that we have never had before. You're hearing this for the <laughs> first time, just like I am. To be very honest with you, I really can't, couldn't tell you now what was the instigating factor. I remember taking your mom up to the cabin, walking through waist-high snow to spend the weekend. I don't know that she had in mind uh, going to the outhouse or walking through the snow. 
which is totally fair on her part. I'd be kind of pissed off too. You're telling me there's no running water in this place and you want me to hike in waist deep snow to get there. You got to be out of your mind. <laughs> well, about a year after that, we got back together and the rest is kind of history. We decided our friends that were, we were all hanging around with had decided to go on a cruise. It was a fur rendezvous group of about 30 people, 35 people, and they were all going on this one Italian cruise line. And we thought after a while that this would be a great time to get married. And we decided that the cruise would be an excellent way for a honeymoon. So now we are on the cruise with 35 of our closest friends and my mom. <laughs> but I will say that if there's anyone who would embrace that situation, it would be grandma because she loved a good party and she loved being social and just being part oh, yeah. of the group and, and having fun. She would have loved yep. that. I'm sure she did. Oh, absolutely. We, we had a great time. We went on having, doing four or five more cruises after that. We had our um, wedding um, reception in Anchorage at Garden of Eden, which is since gone. But it used to be a real nice eatery, one of the best places to get a good steak. And then we went to Lincoln. <laughs> now, this was just before the cruise, so I... I have to backtrack just a little bit and regress. We went, she says, well, we got to meet, you know, I mean, we met Laverne and Betty and some of the L's, Kathy. I was introduced to the full family in Lincoln at the, at the reception we had down there. But what a great family you've come, you come from. Yes. Uh, yes. I couldn't pick them out. I couldn't pick them any better than they got picked. So yeah. I think that they, they did well. We came back to Alaska. Uh, we bought a house out in Wasilla. And one of the reasons we bought a house out in Wasilla is our one of our good buddies was taking over a state farm office in Palmer. Well, he didn't have any place to live. So we had a built-in roommate. And so to help us with our, our uh, mortgage, he moved in and we became, well, we were close friends before, but we were very close friends after that. And mom was um, raising her hand, trying to figure out when she was going to be a grandma. So one birthday in March, one year, uh, it was about 1985, I think. March rolls around and we give her this birthday card and it said, happy birthday, grandma. I thought she was going to fall off her chair. <laughs> I, can, I can picture her seeing that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, she was very excited about the coming of a, of a new baby into the family. And one of the things, you know, you'd ask why I, why I was in the insurance business. As I worked through being in the insurance business, when you were three or four, you used to come to my softball games and standing up on mom's lap driving the Subaru. And... One of the things that um, I found out was that when you work for yourself, you have the ability to be where you need to be anytime you need to be there. So um, when it came time for Logan to play T-ball or Logan to play All-Stars 
or Logan to run in a track meet or play football, I was able to say, hey, okay, I'll be there. Or yep. five o'clock in the morning practices at Brett Arena. <laughs> Got a lot of those before school hockey practices. Oh, you bet. You bet. So you had asked me uh, some time ago, what it, what did I learn from being a dad with a, with a young son? I think one of the most um, standout processes was one evening, some friends of ours took us out to some local local venues and we had imbibed a little too much the next day and mom was feeling a little poorly too and dad was feeling really poorly and logan wanted to play oh yeah so wanted to play catch or video games or just do something so one of the things i learned very early on in your childhood was don't party too much because it is not worth it. The other thing is, is patience is mandatory. That's a learning process, but it has to be mandatory. Yeah. I was going to ask you too, you were a little bit older, not old, but you were a little bit older when I came around. Yep. So did you feel that you had some of that patience built in because you were a little bit older? You were able to kind of take a step back and have that perspective on things? Yeah, I wasn't. You know, it's. I look at some of the dads and moms that are 20 years old. And they got two or three kids, and I'm going. I don't know how you're doing it, other than the fact that they're they're still maybe young at heart enough that they get get involved in the in the pandemonium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 whatever works for you, right? Like if you if you're 18, 19 years old, and you know that you're going to have kids with your husband or wife, you know, with your significant other. That's that's great. But if you want to wait a little while to get more established and to learn some of those patients um, skills, you know, that's OK, too. And I, I think it's whatever works for your personality. You know, I I feel like now I'm getting to the point where I'm practic- I'm trying to be more intentional about being patient with things when things don't happen the way that they should. When I get stressed out about things that I don't need to be stressed out about. I'm hoping that that's going to transfer over to parenthood someday. So I, I didn't know from like, from like your perspective, being, being a little bit older, having some of those lessons already, how that helped you deal with a shithead little kid like me. <laughs> well, I tell you one of the big, one of the biggest things about learning patience and getting along with others was the United States Navy. You don't have any options of getting along. You will get along or you won't be there. I feel like you could take that into just about any career now anyway. Like if you if you can't get along with people, if you can't get along with your coworkers, if you can't find a way to Interact. work together, you're out. Like you yeah. have to have those people skills to be able to succeed now. Either that or you have to be a real good technician. I normally... Um, credit the Navy for giving me that uh, ability to get along with as many people as possible. You're never going to get along with everybody. It would be nice, but it isn't going to work. There's just some bad eggs on both sides of the fence. Yep. So going forward, though, it would it made it easier. I mean, I'm sure I raised my voice a few times at you, but I tried not to because I didn't I didn't appreciate that when I was a kid. And my dad um, went out of his way not to get 
super um, critical about stuff. He'd had two older daughters, so he'd been through that. And when I came along, I mean, Linda was 12 years older than I am, and Donna was uh, 10 years older than I was. So um, it just, it it flowed downhill. I mean, I, I think that uh, if people take a step back, I think I mentioned this before, if they take a step back, take a breath, and then refocus on what the what the issue is, they'd be better, better off. I think that was one of the things you did with me. If I did screw up or if I did have a mistake, I usually was harder on myself than you were. And you saw that you saw that I was acknowledging my mistake and knew I needed to do better. So you just piling on and yelling at me, that wasn't going to help much. I wasn't going to respond very well to that. And, and the other thing about uh, owning your own business and doing your own thing is that you, like you say, you have, we have the flexibility to do what we want, when we want, and with whom we want to do it. I know that there were several times when people said, well, geez, we need you over here. We need to do this. We need to do that. Um, which led me to my illustrious career as a cub master. And between that and coaching, which I really, truly loved, it gave me the time to be with you, your friends, and I got to know them not as Logan's friend, but as Nick or as Mike or whatever, yep. so that we had a relationship, some sort of a bond from not just, hi, Mr. Dad. Tuttle. Yeah. You mentioned that being able to know them on the field is different than knowing them off the field. I, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you can learn a lot from somebody from how they react in a sport, on a team, how they work yep. together, how they play together, how they lead others. Yep, absolutely. And I know that you, it was a long, kind of a long road for you in that timeline because it was hard for you to accept not doing well, making a missed pitch or a whatever. Like you say, it is a it is a product of learning and you did a lot of learning. And the other thing about it was is that I wanted to coach you until I couldn't. And when that came, uh, thank God we had somebody to take over to teach you more than just coming from dad. Because it, it got to the point where it was hard for you to look at me as coach and look at me as dad at the same time. So you have to, you have to step back and let somebody else take the, take the gauntlet and make it happen for you. I was really blessed by having great coaches in my life, no matter what sport it was. I see some of these kids growing up today and some coaches um, that you see on social media, not so much locally, but like on social media is just some assholes who are just in it for their kids. And that was never the case in my life. And I'm just so thankful that I had great coaches along the way. One of my proudest moments was finding out that you were going to coach the American Legion team, the JV team. And, yeah. Yeah. And give, give back some of that, uh, incentives to the, to the players and tell the, you know, helping them understand how it is to, to play. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun coaching. I, I will say that there were a lot of headaches in that. And now I appreciate even more all of the work that coaches do everywhere. Um, just some of the politics stuff that go into it. Oh. And some of the, you know, my kid is the best kid on the team type of situation. It's 
it's tough to deal with. So hats off to coaches everywhere um, for being able to deal with that in a professional manner and keep doing what you're doing. Keep up the mission. Absolutely. And I, you know, those moments, those moments you give back, you get twice back from that. Oh, big time. I mean, I, I remember talking with some of the guys, some of the players on your, on your JV team and how much they admired you and enjoyed uh, playing under you just gave me um, swell chest. Well, that means a lot. So, that means a lot. Yeah. I know I coached a lot of really good kids. They were open. They were willing to learn and they knew that it, they were part of the team. It wasn't just yeah. about Johnny. It was about the whole team. Yeah. Just having kids like that made it all worth it. That was amazing. I, absolutely. I know I enjoyed my coaching career, even though it was short lived some along the way. As we've gotten older, what are some of the things that you've kind of learned? Um, you and mom are empty, empty nesters. Now you guys get to travel a lot. It's kind of goes back to what you were saying before of you can be where you want to be at any given time. You guys spend right. a lot of time in Hawaii to just kind of relax and get out of Alaska for a little bit. What are some of the lessons that you guys have learned um, on your travels, meeting new friends and, and that type of thing? When you're traveling, you get input from people of like minds. So you're, you're not part of a club, but you are, you like to get to Hawaii. You like to go do this. You like to listen to the Hawaiian music and it's like magnets. I can relate to that. When Sarah and I were on our honeymoon, we met Holly and Casey yep. and we're still friends. And that was four years ago. You know, it's just, yep. it's amazing. We still keep in touch. So you guys have friends like that too, though, who you keep in touch with and you travel with all the time. It's just a cool feeling to meet these people from halfway around Everywhere. the country. Yeah. And just having that bond with them. That's, that's a pretty special thing to share. It is wonderful to have friendship like that. It's sort of like that old adage that a true friend you never lose touch with because you can meet and be back on the same page within minutes. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that, that traveling, and that was one reason why we travel, you traveled with us so often when we were, uh, while you were still in school, well, until it got to the point where we couldn't miss a lot of school. Right. I, my thought was is that travel is the best one of the best teachers because it does put you in a different perspective of people doing the same things around the world. Any place we go, they're doing the same things we are here, only with a little twist. I know we have a lot more to get into, and we're going to have more episodes of this. Before we sign off for tonight, is there anything else that we should cover in this first episode or maybe queue up the, the next conversation we have i really think that we've kind of taken it to to the not to the end but to the beginning of your process your schooling process your not shitting in the house process <laughs> i love that one uh i think that um as we go as we learn there's more things that we can share and i'll from time to time, this mature brain will probably think of a few anecdotes that we might not have touched on that might give a smile to somebody. I would just hope that the people that are listening take a moment, take a deep breath, smile, and go forward. And don't let anything stand in your way. 
great words of wisdom right there from Poncho himself. <laughs> that, well, we didn't get to that. We one. didn't get to that. We're going to save it for the next one. Uh, we'll get into some other stuff later. Uh, dad, okay. thank you for spending some time with me tonight. This has been amazing. We've talked about things that we have never talked about before. And I've got goosebumps right now because it was an amazing experience. And this situation, this interview style has allowed us to go deeper than we have ever gone before. Just so you know, one of the reasons why you don't have, we've never gone there before is we've never had the opportunity to delve this deep one-on-one because there's usually somebody else around or interjects or whatever, phone ringing, text going off, whatever. But yes, I enjoyed it thoroughly myself. I'm probably a little chatty than I normally should be. Need a drink of wine. That's what this is Um, for. Be chatty. (laughs) So, yes, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate the comments about Father's Day. And it has been an honor being your dad. Um, You make me very proud. That means a lot, Dad. I've been trying my best to make you proud. One foot in front of the other one. I love you. I love you too, son. All right. Talk to you. Good night.